Well, it's good to see everybody here this morning. I am excited to be able to, uh, to be speaking with you. Uh, I will admit that I was a little bit panicked. We got to that third song and I realized I've got to take this guitar off and uh, at some point be able to preach. And so I leaned back uh, to mom and said, hey, will you pray for me really quick just so I can get undressed and come back? <laughs> just give me 15 seconds. Um, but I'm, I am excited to be preaching for us to, this morning, to be bringing the word for us. And I'm, I'm going to jump right into it. I want you to go ahead and turn with me this morning to Exodus uh, chapter 32. I'm jumping in because we have so much that we're going to cover today. We're going to be talking about a lot of really fun topics, from money to power to politics, all the really fun issues to address in a church service that are sure not to make anyone angry or uncomfortable. Uh, so there's your warning before we get started. But we are going to be out of Exodus chapter 32. And if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that we are in the middle of this sermon series that's up on the slides called The Presence of God. And we've been looking at uh, several chapters here in Exodus. Last week we were in chapters 33 um, and 34. And one of our main points last week that Pastor Steve brought, the main, one of the main points was that the presence of God is the purpose of Christianity. That is the sole purpose of Christianity, to be filled with um, the presence of God. And this week we're going backwards one chapter. We're starting at chapter 32. But that main point that we talked about last week, that the presence of God is the main purpose of Christianity, is still what, we're, we're, what we are going to be talking about um, today. But instead, we're going to be looking at what happens, or what happens when we replace that presence of God with the presence of something else. I want to look at Exodus 32 right now. We're going to be in verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to skip down to 15 through 20. And it says this, verse 1, When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives and sons and daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then he said, Then they said, the Israelites, they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, who was on the mountain, The Lord said, Go down, because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt." They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Let's skip to verse 15. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is, there is the sound of war in the camp. Then Moses replied, it's not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. Verse 19. 
When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Let's pray. God, as we come before this passage of a failure of your people of, of Israel, of the people of God. Lord, we, we open ourselves up this morning so that you may reveal to us our own idolatries. God, that you will reveal to us where we have replaced your presence with the presence of something else, Lord. As we open ourselves up to you, God, we pray that this place, as we've prayed already today, no matter where we are, will be filled and saturated with the Holy Spirit. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Now, if you read the chapters that come before chapter 32, all the way even up to the, the Exodus 24, you know that this mountain that Moses is coming down from is, is Mount Sinai. And the two tablets that he throws on the ground and he breaks out of anger are, are the law of God. They're the, the Ten Commandments. And when you read there in Exodus chapter 24, if you go back a few, few chapters before, you read that Moses was up on the mountain uh, a very long time, quite some time. Uh, 24 tells us that he was on the mountain for at least a week, for seven days before God said anything at all to him. And after that seven days, he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. So he's, uh, he's up there for almost two months. But as we look at this chapter 32, as we come to when Moses is coming down from the mountain, I don't want to get caught up in the specifics of this story uh, and to get caught up in the, the nitty-gritty of it. Scholars tell us, if, if you go and you, and you read about the book of Exodus, that the book of Exodus wasn't actually completely written uh, until sometime shortly after the Babylonian exile, um, which was about a thousand years after the time when this story was actually set. Instead, these stories from in Exodus about Moses and the book of Genesis was passed down through oral tradition and some written passages, and then they were combined at that time after the Babylonian exile. So knowing that, we have to look at this passage for what it truly is. We have to look at this passage as if it's a story about the people of God from a perspective that's, that's trying to convey a very specific message. And the message that, that we can glean from this passage of Scripture, the, the big picture of chapter 32 that we've just read, is that in the face of the smallest uncertainty, the Israelites replaced the presence of God with the presence of something else. And this is something that occurred over and over and over for the Israelites um, throughout the Old Testament. This was not the first time. But it was one of many times over the course of generations, over a, a, a thousand years or more, that the Israelites, the people of God that were set apart, found themselves voluntarily worshiping an idol that was not um, their God. Here, they had been set apart. They'd been rescued from their exile. They'd been rescued from their slavery there in Egypt. And here, not long after that rescue, they attribute this rescue to something that was not their rescuer to something that was not their God. They traded the presence of God here for convenience, for something that was right in front of them, rather than patiently waiting for what was to, to come. 
And if you've ever heard me preach out of the Old Testament before, which most of you have, you, you know that I love to do this. I, I love preaching out of the Old Testament. And I say this nearly every time, if not every single time, over and over. It's why I, I love the fact that we don't just get, have to preach from, or we don't just get to preach from the New Testament and the life of Jesus and what comes after, but we have this Old Testament to look at, uh, to look at the people of God, because we can examine the journey of the people of God through the Old Testament. And as we, as we look at their journey and, and what happens um, throughout that Old Testament, we can better understand our own journey as the people of God right now, some four or 5,000 years later. The life of, of the people of God, the life of the church, really does run in a cycle. It's kind of like this circle. You've heard that the phrase that, that time is cyclical, and that's the same for, for the church. And sadly, what we see here in chapter 32, this form of idolatry, is something that is a part of the life cycle of the church. While the church is led by God, as the Israelites were led by God, who is perfect, the church, the people of God, are made up of people who are not perfect, people who can easily be led astray. I think it's important to look at this story today, this story when, when the people of God chose the presence of an idol over the presence of their God, because we need to realize that this has happened to us. We can fall into this trap of, of seeing the people around us, seeing the, the, the little C church as this in, in, infallible structure. And yes, if, if we were to be completely and totally and perfectly following God that, that has called us and we were perfect at that in every single way, that would be the case, but that's just not the reality. We're made up of imperfect people, and so we do and we say imperfect things. Over the last 100 years or more, the church in America has been um, completely externally focused. And what I mean by that is, is that our evangelism, our evangelistic roots uh, and teachings have led us to proclaim, and it's been like this over after over 100 years, proclaim and, and learn almost this us versus them approach to the world. We've been taught our, our entire lives that the world outside the church is bad, but, but we're good and it's our job to change, to change them. Now, we can all agree, and, and I agree, that we are called to be evangelistic. We are called to be examples of God's grace and to be examples of God's mercy. We are called to, to take the good news into every corner of the world. That's very clearly said there um, in the New Testament. And that was actually the calling to the people of Israel. They were supposed to be doing that as well. But I want you to hear my heart this morning. When we are completely focused on how bad they are, but, but how good we are, we can very easily forget to take a good, hard look at ourselves. So this morning, I want us to forget about what's going, going on outside in the world right now. We're not going to talk about the things that we believe that need to be fixed out there. We're not going to talk about the sin that we see in the world. But instead, I want us to take a step back. I want us to examine ourselves as the church and find if we are truly being motivated by the presence of of God, or have we replaced that with the presence of a golden calf? Have we replaced the presence of God with a golden calf as a church, as the church in America today? 
Now, while this passage of Scripture shows clearly that this switch to idolatry, uh, it, it shows very clearly this switch that, that, the, that the Israelites made, I, I don't think it's as helpful to us today as some other passages about idolatry when we talk about um, this topic. And that's because it's so sudden. It's like the people of God are, are waiting and waiting almost 40 days and nights for, for Moses to come off the mountain with a word from the Lord. And then suddenly it's like a light switch. It's like, boom, they're sick of it. So they melt down their gold and they make another God to worship. But it just doesn't always happen that way. Instead, I think there's another instance of idolatry in the Old Testament that can more accurately portray how this can happen and how we can find ourselves um, in this situation. And it's in Judges 8. It's, in, it's towards the end of the life of, of Gideon. You don't have to turn there. Um, I'm going to have it up on the screen. But this, this takes place after Gideon has this great uh, victory over the Midianites. Uh, and this is what it says in chapter 8, verses 22 through 27. It says, The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder, as this was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear their gold earrings. The Israelites answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder into it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, and I don't know how many pounds that is, but it's probably a lot, I would imagine, not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on their camel's necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All of Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. See, I think that this passage, this passage, this story of Gideon and, and the ephod that he built from the gold is a lot more often how our idolatry can start. Because unlike the passage that we read in Exodus, the Israelites here are not asking in Judges for an idol to be made. They aren't asking for a new God specifically. And even Gideon, when he made the ephod, he, he probably didn't intend for it to become an idol that was worshipped by all of Israel. Uh, in fact, it doesn't exactly say this in the passage, but, but when Gideon says that only God will rule over the people, I think we can take that and we can infer that he probably meant for this ephod to, to be uh, just a symbol of their victory over the Midianites. It was probably meant this, this, uh, this golden, uh, it was kind of a, a piece that you would wear. This, this, this moment was a memento, uh, it was a memento of something that God had done, a victory that God had given them and something that was to be seen as harmless. But this harmless memento, this harmless uh, symbol, was an unintended invitation into idolatry. And that's much closer to what we can experience today. It's almost as if it happens by accident. Now, you may ask, what, then what should we be on the lookout for? What could be around us that might just accidentally make us trip and, and fall and, and, and begin to worship uh, something as an idol? What, what is it that could mistakenly cause us to replace the presence of God with, with a golden calf? And well, well, I'm glad you asked. Of course, the, the easiest target, maybe, maybe the, the lowest hanging of all the fruit, is money. 
it can be so very easy for us to focus solely on, on how we're going to pay for things, uh, how we're going to make it day to day, from day to day, um, that our own money can become an idol. And once we get past the, the day-to-day stage, it can be, well, how much is in my savings account? Or how much is coming in? Or how much is going out? And that can so easily become an idol that we put before our God. Another very low-hanging fruit is power. We can easily think, That God wants us to be in power. That He wants us, He wants me to prosper. So if we are are close to God, then then good things will happen, uh, and we'll make a lot of money, and we'll have a lot of followers, and people will hold us in in very high esteem. Um, But if we are far from God, then bad things will happen. But that's not the case. In fact, if, if we believe that, we begin to put our own success and our own power before the presence of God. And that's idolatry. But I believe the one thing that tempts the church, especially in America, more than anything else today, I believe our biggest idol is our politics. And I know some of you wanted to audibly groan. I know that we are experiencing one of the most divided political spectrums in our history, and people are sick of hearing about it. And I'm sick of hearing about it. But the fact remains that if we are called to influence the world around us, if we are are called to be a solution to the problem of division, then we can't be a part of the problem. But we are. And friends, i got to tell you this morning, as we look around... At the ashes of a country that has been ravaged. In the middle of those ashes is a burnt and battered church that started the fire. We so easily, especially in election cycles like the one that we just came out of, fall into an American or a Republican, or a Democratic perspective first, rather than first into a Christian perspective. And you've heard this said many times behind this pulpit. But neither of our political parties is the Christian party. Instead, as Christians, we are called to stand from from outside these bubbles. Uh, the, the bubble of, of Republicans and, and Democrats, the bubbles of, uh, of capitalism and, and socialism, the bubbles of Americanism. As Christians, we are called to stand from outside of those things, to stand for an example of a hope and an example of a, a future that is, is greater than anything these parties or these ideals stand for. But standing outside of those bubbles hasn't been our reality And instead of allowing the presence of God to firstly fill us and the presence of God to lead lead us as we navigate this political divide, we have allowed our political thoughts to fill us. Our political thoughts to lead us to who we think God is. And I'm going to say that again. Instead of allowing God to mold us and shape us and for God to inform our politics... We have allowed our politics to inform who our God is. 
The presence of God has slowly been traded for the golden calf of partisan politics. And when we're filled with the presence of politics, rather than the presence of God, we forget that we are first called to love, even those that disagree with us. When we are filled with the presence of politics, rather than the presence of God, we, become, uh, we begin to demonize those who disagree with us. And when the church is filled with the presence of politics, rather than the presence of God, we become a part of the problem instead of the solution. But like in the story of Gideon, something like this doesn't happen all at once. We haven't, we haven't asked for a golden calf because we got impatient while we were waiting on God to come down from the mountain, but instead, serving a golden calf, such as, as politics or such as money or power, can and has snuck up on us. But if there's one thing that we can take from this story in Exodus chapter 32, it's from the two main characters, the, the characters of Aaron um, and Moses. For the Israelites, they had a choice. Who were they going to go to for guidance? Were they going to go to Aaron? Or would they wait on Moses? Would they go to the one on the mountain or the one casting the calf? For us today, when we ask ourselves this question, it's as simple as examining what we're filling our, times with, our time with. What are we spending our time thinking about and talking about? Who are the people that we go to to ask for their opinions or, or, or for their input? Are we going to, to the leaders and to the sources that have, or to the scriptures that have been on the mountain with God? Or are we going to the people and the things that are casting the calf? We have allowed ourselves to be discipled by things that are not from God. We fill our time watching the news, reading the news, discussing it with friends and family, or, God forbid, posting about it on Facebook. But what we are lacking, what the church is lacking today, and I'm going to diagnose it here, is discipleship that is from the mountain, that comes from the presence of God. Because as humanity, as humans, we are hungry and starving for something that forms and molds and shapes us. But as we're hungry, Moses is still on the mountain. And the forming and the shaping, what's coming down from uh, the mountain is difficult. It's a tough process. It's going to be up there for a while. It's going, to take, it's going to take patience and it's going to take time. So instead of, of waiting for what is on the mountain to come down, to be filled with the presence of God, we reach for the things, for the presence of things that can be readily available. And we allow ourselves to be shaped by the voices that are not from God. Instead, we're shaped by those who are casting the calf. We're shaped by news commentators and internet posts from anonymous sources. We're shaped only by those who agree with us because we've blocked out and unfollowed all other voices. We are being shaped by those voices 
who were casting the calf. So how do we fix it? In Exodus 32 here, it seems that the damage has been done here in verse 20. The people of Israel have been duped. They've turned their back on the God that rescued them from the Egyptians. And they've now crowned a new God as Savior. So what's to be done now now that the presence of God has been replaced with the presence of an idol? Well, let's go to verse 25 here, and you're going to see what, what Moses does. Verse 25 says, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp of the Israelites and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one into another, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Now this is one of these moments in the Old Testament where we do not take it as a literal application to what we're supposed to do in the 21st century. This is one of the reasons that I don't always love to preach out of the Old Testament because it's filled with passages like this one that sounds horrific. 3,000 people died this day. And that's what this sounds like. Hearing hearing what what Moses tells the Israelites to do, which he says comes from uh, the voice of God, uh, it makes you kind of ask when you hear that, was, was there really no better way to deal with this idolatry? Was there really, really no better way to, 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 to get rid of it or to handle this situation other than killing 3,000 people? But I think that the extremity of the response that we see here from Moses here, and I think that's uh, verse 28, 27 and 28, the extremity of that response shows us that the only way to deal with idolatry, and I want you to hear me this morning, The only way to deal with such idolatry is to completely purge it from within us. To leave no trace of love for the golden calf among us. But how do we purge such sin from ourselves? Well, today, some four or five thousand years after this Exodus story, And after the New Testament, after the new covenant in Christ, we purge ourselves of sin through confession and through repentance. That's the only way. Moses says here in these few verses, there in 26 and 27 and 28, in this extremely graphic and in this horrific fashion, Moses tells them, purge all such sin from within your ranks. And he says, O Israel, Israel, by the morning there should be no more idolatry left within you. And today, without violence, without pointing out the, the speck in our brother's eye until we full, pull the plank out of our own, we are given the same commission. Purge all such sin from within you. Bury your idolatry in the ground. Whether it's politics or money 
or power or family or, or relationships or happiness or, or, or laziness or friendships, whatever it may be, whatever our golden calf is, come before your God, come before your church, burn your golden calf to ashes and drink the mud so that it can never be found again. And once we've done that, once the idolatry is purged from within us, then we can be resurrected with Christ, filled only with the presence of God. The hardest thing for us today as the church when it comes to idolatry is that we can no longer see our idols as clearly as Moses saw the golden calf. Not only that, but the idols that we're talking about today, such as politics and power, are idols that have been passed down from generation to generation to a point where they have truly become <coughs> a part of our belief system to where it is indistinguishable from the Christianity that we practice today. But this morning we have an opportunity We have an opportunity to respond to the call from Moses that he gave there in, in verse 26. When he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Confession, just that word, is seen for some reason as this reviled term to us. It means that we allow our sin to come out into the open. And we're so used to and we are so tempted to allow our sin to be hidden in the shadows. We don't want other people to know that those things about us. But confession is one of the strongest commands that's given to us in the New Testament. You see it in First and Second Timothy. You see it in James. You see it um, in Romans. All throughout the New Testament, we see that we are to confess not only to God, it's because it's not just a, a me and God thing, but confession we see in the New Testament um, is to God and to each other. We confess to God and to each other that we have sinned. And here in church, or as the church, that shouldn't be that hard. Because we all know by now, and we've talked about this so many times here from this pulpit, we all know that none of us are perfect. <laughs> and if you think that all of us are perfect, I would just really encourage you to just sit in one day on one of our staff meetings, and you would find out very quickly that even the church staff is far, far from perfect. So we know that none of us are perfect. And because of that, because of that imperfection, the church should not be a place where sin is hidden from view, where it's tucked into the corner so we can't see it. <coughs> but instead, the church should be a place where our sin comes out for God and each other to see. 
as the church, we can admit to ourselves, to each other, and to God, that we see that we have sin. That we see that we have an idol that is keeping us away from the true presence of God. Because if we can't admit admit that right here to ourselves, to the people around us that, that love us, that are here for us, if we can't admit that to, to, to these people, then where else can we admit it? Is there any other place on earth where confession is accepted with a loving embrace? It's only here. It's only to those that surround us as the church. Now, in, in light of that, I have some homework for all of us. An assignment for all of us this week. And I want you to take this seriously. I don't want you to forget about it by the time you're done with lunch. And, um, and then come back next week without having done it. But I want you to, to spend some time in prayer this week. And I'm not talking about three hours in a dark room in, in meditation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about spend some time in prayer. I want this to be at the forefront of your mind um, in all that you do this week. In all all that you do throughout your day, whether it's driving down the road, whether it's work or school, I want this to be your prayer. I want it to be at the forefront of your mind. I want us to examine our own faith and find what is the golden calf that's keeping us away from the presence of God. What have we replaced the presence of God with? And then, and this is the hard part, And this is the one that 95% of you are going to skip. But if just five people, if just five people will do this, that's all I'm asking. Then I want you to find one person, I want you to share that with them. That can be your spouse, a close friend. You can call me, you can call Pastor Steve, Pastor Daniel. We would love to, uh, to answer your phone call this week and have a conversation um, about this idolatry with you to, 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 to hear um, a confession and to, to, to celebrate with you in that. But to show you I'm serious, and I very much so am, and I think that this is extremely important for us to practice as the church. To show you I'm serious, I'm going to confess to you what I think my biggest idol is. What I've replaced God with. It's significance. I want more than anything, more than anything, to feel important. Like I've done something that matters, like I've done something that, that makes people um, remember my name. And I can put that above everything. I can, put, I can let that motivate everything that I do from the time that I wake up, from the time um, that I go to sleep at night. I can put it above God. I can put it above my own calling um, as a pastor. But deep down, I know that for God's kingdom to flourish... For God's kingdom to meet us here um, on this earth, for God's will to be done, Hunter Thrasher must be forgotten, and Christ must solely be glorified. 
But most days, that's hard to remember. Moses says there in verse 26, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. We confess. We repent. We purge our idolatry from within us. And we are filled only with the presence of God. Let's pray. As you have your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want us this morning to lift up a family in our community, to lift up our students. We tragically lost a senior in high school this past week. You've probably heard about it. But please be lifting up the Simpson family and our students today and through the days ahead. I believe that the celebration of life service is today at 1 o'clock at the Panther Pavilion. But keep them in your thoughts and prayers. Let's pray. Dear God, we come before you this morning. Recognizing now our failure. God, we have traded your presence for the presence of an idol. For the presence of, of a golden calf, God. And it, and it wasn't because of that we don't love you. Lord, it wasn't because we, we don't see the, the, great, the great things that you've done for us, God. But it's because we've allowed ourselves to be filled by the presence of the one that is casting the calf. And not the one who is on the mountain. God, this morning we confess that to you. God, we repent. We, purge, we ask you to purge this from ourselves. Lord, give us the strength to confess. Give us the strength to rely on others, to be open with others. To put our own sin out so that you can see it, God, so that others can see it, so that we can then um, relinquish it. We thank you this morning for your presence. God, we thank you that as we are filled up with your spirit, we are emptied, by the, we are emptied of the presence of these idols, God. God, the more that we have of you, the less that we have of them. We thank you so much for the power of your Holy Spirit. And God, this morning we lift up our community. We lift up our students. We lift up the Simpson family, God. As they have experienced this tragedy this past week. God, as we are praying for your presence, Lord, we pray that it will fill the place that they're at. God, that your comfort will be like a warm blanket over them. Because, God, you, you are our comforter. We thank you for your spirit, for your grace, for your mercy. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Yes. <laughs>
Love you guys. Have a good week.